Good morning. If you'd like to go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Matthew. We'll be looking in the book of Matthew uh, in just a moment this morning as we begin our, our focus. And our focus will be one of, of introspection. This morning I want to spend some time looking within ourselves and I also want to spend some time in extrospection. I want us to examine what is outside of ourselves as well. Uh, and and I'm to really stop and to explore what Jesus has to say in Matthew chapter 5 and how it relates to kingdom living. Now I know in the, in the, uh, the children's classes, uh, Sister Paula and, and, and uh, Sister Holly, they've been working with our, our children and they've been learning some of these things. And so young ones, you all are going to, to hear some things that you've probably heard uh, in the last couple of weeks. Uh, and I hope that you will listen as well as we talk about this. And I imagine... We could probably take the things that you have heard and then make a whole sermon series out of them. I know that you all have such a great knowledge. Um, but, but there is still more that we can learn as we consider Jesus' words here on the Sermon on the Mount. I have to say, though, before we get started, that this is, this is just su- such a blessing that we have. This sort of living. Kingdom living. And we should be mindful of it. Not, not just on today. A day where we have already spent a great deal of time as, as Jim memorialized the, the, the death of our Savior. And we remember that in the Lord's Supper. And as Brother, Brother Joe led us in, in our song service and Charles and the prayer that he has led us in, we, we are focused and focusing our minds today and should take anything else out of our minds that could take that focus away on Christ and on His kingdom. But we should be doing this every day. Every day is an opportunity for us to consider that we are citizens in the greatest kingdom the world will ever know. A kingdom that shadows over world leaders and superpowers like they are children playing in a sandbox. You know, oftentimes we think of patriotism. And when we think of patriotism, we think of love of country. We think of a love that is so great that we are willing to live for that country and even to die for that country. When we have a proper understanding of the kingdom that we are a part of, what sort of patriotism does that bring to our hearts? What sort of patriotism should that bring to our hearts? That's what Jesus is beginning to discuss here in Matthew chapter 5. In verses 1 through 12, he is going over what is popularly known as the Beatitudes. (coughs) And in them, Jesus' focus is on the character of the citizens of His kingdom and the blessedness of the citizens of His kingdom. This is what the citizens will look like and this is the, res- the, the result of them looking like that. True happiness and this idea of being blessed. But then we see as He goes on, He begins to describe the attitude that the world often will display towards citizens of His kingdom. Verses 10-12, through 12, He talks about those who will persecute you. And those who will insult you. And those who will even lie against you because of Him. This is certainly and can be looked at as a call to arms. Jesus is saying this is what citizens of my kingdom look like. And this is how the world will treat them. And in most speeches of this magnitude and of this importance, this will be the time where we would hear something along the lines of, and this is what we're going to do about it. This is who you are. This is who people who have set themselves opposed to your kingdom have done. And this is what we're going to do. And that's precisely what Jesus does. 
But true to his fashion, he does so in a rather countercultural sort of way. He's going to describe the influence the kingdom will have upon the world. Read with me verses 13 through 16. He says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus was using these two metaphors of salt and light. And he was giving us a lesson on what living kingdom lives in that century, in the first century that he was talking to these people in Matthew 5, and in every century that would ever come afterwards. He was teaching us how to live lives of salt and light. And so to begin, we're going to look at his first metaphor. You are the salt of the earth. And in it we see... We see several things. One of the first things that we want to take some time to look at are the characteristics of salt. When we think of salt, what, what exactly is salt? And if we were to ask the children, I imagine they would give us a whole, a whole slew of answers as to what salt is. Maybe, maybe I know some of my children say salt tastes good. It tastes really, really good. In fact, we, we have to be on them sometimes so you can't eat salt by itself. Don't just lick your finger and stick it in the salt. You've got to put it on something and then use it sparingly. Maybe they would say, well, salt is white. And up to uh, most of my life, I believe, that was the only color salt could be. Now we have pink salt that supposedly comes from the Himalayas. They say salt preserves. You know, back before refrigerators, we would put coat, like, uh, a piece of meat. You could put salt on it, wrap it up, even bury it in the ground. It would preserve it. Based on the context of Matthew chapter 5, it is very likely that Jesus is using salt in a metaphoric way and talking about the ability that it has to enhance flavor. We see that in his illustration just after saying you are the salt of the earth, he says if salt has become tasteless. So it seems that Jesus is talking about the flavoring abilities of salt. Salt has the ability to give flavor to that which is otherwise kind of bland. And this isn't a dig to anyone's cooking, but you have all likely had something. At one point, you ate it and went, you know what, it's just, it doesn't really do anything. That's kind of a bleh sort of meal. But with just a little bit of salt, how we can bring out the savoriness of that meal. It's just what it needs. Even over in Job chapter 6, verse 6, Job understood this. He said, how can anything be eaten that is tasteless without salt? He said, is there any taste in the white of an egg? That's really popular today. We're going to eat egg whites alone. If you've ever eaten egg whites, you'll know they don't really have a whole lot of flavor. Most of that flavor is in the the yellow, is in the yolk. Salt has the ability to give flavor to that which has no flavor. To give taste to that which is even maybe distasteful. And so through the metaphor of salt, Jesus illustrates that there's a relationship of the citizens of his kingdom and to the world. And it is one that is making the world palatable, making the world bearable, both to God and and, and possibly to others as well. I (coughs) I imagine you have known in your life, or maybe you have been to someone else, that person that is able to make things bearable for someone. Maybe you, you've gone all day and your, your boss has fussed at you. You've had a, a tough day or maybe a, a spouse or, or a girlfriend or boyfriend. Somebody has just, you, you've just had this terrible fight and, and you feel like 
just everything is just going horrible today, but there's that one person. Maybe it's a member of your family. Maybe it's a close friend. That one person that says, you know what? When I'm around them, it just makes things better. It reminds me that God is still in this world and He was still in control. We need to try to be that person. Be that person for someone else. We also need to realize that we are very likely that person for God. Someone that can make the world palatable. Someone that can help God bear with a world that has become distasteful through wickedness. See, this idea that the righteous... Uh, the righteous few can make it easier for God to bear or forbear with the wicked is illustrated in countless places in the Bible. Most notably, we see it in Abraham's conversation that he has with God. And I love, love the conversation that we read of. Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18, verses 20 through 32. <coughs> It says, And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do justly? This is one of these passages in the Bible that I, I love. And sometimes we read this and, and we, we are, just tend to go... Wow, I can't believe that Abraham stood up to God like that. I can't believe that he had the backbone to say what he had to say. But I, I want to suggest this morning that, that what Abraham was saying was not in, in rebellion to God. He was not kind of thumbing his nose to God. As a matter of fact, I believe what Abraham was saying was, was very uh, something he was very afraid of. He was fearful, as he would even say later, that he... He has said far more than he should have even said, that he even has the right to say. But I believe Abraham was talking from a place of a relationship that he had with God. He knew who God was. He knew the kind of being that God was, the, the mercy that God offered. And so he's going to ask him here for 50 people, Lord. 50 people would you not spare these evil cities? In verse 26, the Lord answers and says, If I find 50 righteous within the city, I will spare the whole place on their account. Wow! 50 people. If you can find 50 people within the two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, I will spare it. And Abraham it's, it just keeps on pushing. He keeps on picking at this. He says in verse 27, He says, Now, now behold, I, I ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. He knows his place in this conversation. He says, Lord, what, what, if, what if there's only 45? What if you, you can't find all 50? What if there's five people that are lacking? And again, God answers him, if there are 45, I will spare the place. And Abraham is just going to keep picking at this number and keep whittling this number down until he finally comes down and says, God, what if, what if there's just 10? What if there's only 10 people in the city? 
Ten righteous people. Will you spare the city? And God says, for ten. On account of ten, I will not destroy it. In verse 32. This is... This is one of these truths that just hits you so hard. Out of all the people that were in Sodom and Gomorrah, if there had only been ten who were righteous, he would have spared it. This isn't the only time we see this. In Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 1, God says, roam to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem Look and, and look now and take note and seek in her open squares. If you can find a man, if there is one who does justice, who seeks truth, then I will pardon her. What I want us to notice is that in the days of Noah, there was not enough salt to hold back the flood. In the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, there was not enough salt to stop destruction. And in the days of Israel and Judah, there was not enough stop, excuse me, salt to stop captivity. The point in all this that should bring to our hearts is what about in our day? Because from God's point of view, the citizens of His kingdom give the world good flavor. So what about you and me? How are we seasoning the world today? Is there enough salt to allow God to forbear it a little while longer? We have to ask ourselves that question. What are we doing? We also need to realize that Jesus goes on to say that it's not just not just that we need to be the salt. We need to recognize that we can lose our ability as salt. Our ability to be a flavoring agent. You know, that is not the case with pure salt. Pure salt will never lose its flavor. But when it is mixed with the impurities, then it begins to lose that ability that it has. And in this day that Jesus talked to, they, they knew what salt was. This was not some, some, something that is just you know, a newfound ingredient to the world. They knew exactly what salt was. They were able to go and get salt from the marshes around the area. They, they were close to one of the largest bodies of salty, salty water. Not just salt water is in the ocean, but the Dead Sea has such a high salt level, such a concentrated salt level. It's even been reported that you can, you can sit down in the water and float on top because of all the salt that's in it. It is just a huge amount of salt here. And they know good and well how to preserve it. If it is exposed to the sun for too long, it loses its flavor. If it is exposed to air for too long, it loses its flavor. If it is is, comes in contact with the ground for a long enough period of time, it will lose its flavor. 
And we too might lose our ability to be flavoring agents for the world if, if we allow impurities to come into contact with our lives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, maybe this is a little bit what was in, in Paul's mind when he wrote to the Corinthians saying, Do not be deceived or do not be tricked. Bad company corrupts good morals. Don't think for a second that if you're living the pure life, but you start allowing yourself to, to hang out and associate and be a part of impure things, that you're going to remain pure. Don't be tricked. That's not what's going to happen. And so we need to keep ourselves away from impurities. We need to keep ourselves away from sin. This is the same message Paul stresses to the, to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3-7, through 7, he says, But immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God came, comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. We must keep ourselves pure. We must keep ourselves set apart from the impurities of the world. Which is to say we must live as saints. You know, there's a lot of times in our lives where we, we come into contact with impurities and we, we really don't even give it a second thought. And that's the danger that sin can have in our lives. It's just a little bit of sin. A little bit of sin will start a searing process on our conscience. Just a little bit of nudity on the television... Just a little bit of hateful thoughts. Just a little bit of slothfulness and laziness can lead to a lot more. We are surrounded by things that are impure. And we live in a world that is impure. But we need to make sure that we don't allow those things to corrupt the purity that we have in Christ. Because if we lose our flavor, as it says, how are, we, how are we going to be seasoned again? Impurities prevent us from being useful to God. And we will be thrown out. Here Jesus is teaching the possibility of losing our salvation. And He does this elsewhere. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 40-43, through 43, He talks about, that we read the parable of the, of the tares. And he talks here about the, those who practice lawlessness and those who will be cast into fire. But in Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, we read such a vivid image of, of Christ's inability to, to stand that which is, is repugnant to Him, that, that which has no flavor. It says in verse 15, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Those are pretty powerful, powerful words that we are reading there. We need to remember the message to the Laodiceans. We need to remember that we are the salt of the earth. 
And we need to hold to a very high priority in our lives to maintain that ability to be salt. In this we see the relationship of the citizens of the kingdom to the world. We see this from God's point of view. You are the salt of the earth. But continuing on, we find Jesus teaching concerning the citizens of the kingdom as their primary function in the world. So we have seen their, their relationship their relationship with the world from God's point of view. Now we're going to see from God's point of view their primary function in that world. And that is verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 through 15, it says, <clears throat> Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. <coughs> we are to be lights to a very dark, dark world. And 1 Peter 2 verse 9 tells us part of that and the way in which we do that is in proclaiming the praises of God. Over in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Or as Paul put it, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, he said, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. We are to be lights to a dark, dark world. But did you notice the beginning of verse 8 in Ephesians chapter 5? We are not the light in and of ourselves. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 8 tells us that we come from the darkness as well. So we are not a light of ourselves. We are a light only in the Lord. In fact, John chapter 8, verse 12 tells us the true and the original light is Jesus. Then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Citizens of the kingdom then are simply mirrors. Have you ever, have you ever taken time to look up at a bright, brightly lit night sky and saw how brilliant the moon was shining. Now I'm, again, I, I've confessed before and I'm going to show it again that I'm, I'm a little bit of a nerd and these sort of things just completely fascinate me and will take up more time than I, than I, pray, than, than I want to admit. But I am blown away at the, the uh, complexities and, and the greatness of, of Jesus' creation in our universe and in outer space and here on earth. But the moon, the moon is just one of these things that I think is so fascinating. The atmosphere on the moon is so much different than our own. Forever, scientists believe there was no atmosphere on the moon. And they come to find out there is an atmosphere. 
and the relation that it has to our atmosphere at sea level is mind-boggling. The differences in it. But yet, because of its atmosphere, it does something that, that earth cannot do. It sucks up light like a vacuum. Like the vacuum that it is. It pulls in so much light and it reflects it off of its surface. And so that sometimes you'll look up and you would think for certain that light is originating from within the moon itself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I believe that's exactly what we are being told to be for God. I believe that's exactly what God expects us to do. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, read with me here verse 6. Verse 6 says, For God who said, Light shall shine out of the darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God expects us to be little luminaries, little moons, and to have an atmosphere around us that sucks up as much of His light as we can possibly hold and reflects it back out to the world. To a dark world. And you know, when, when that moon is shining so bright, oftentimes the source of its light is a whole world away. It's completely on the other side of the planet, and yet, and yet we still are receiving its light. And for so many people, God can feel a whole world away. And when they feel like they are so lost and, and in such a darkness, we need to be shining. His light for them. But in that, we see that we then have two, a twofold responsibility. One is that as the light of the world, we have to be visible. We're not talking about infrared light here. We're talking about light that you can see. That's implied by Jesus in His use of the word city and of the words lampstands as metaphors. Jesus expects His followers to be seen by the world. In John 13, verse 35, a passage we oftentimes turn to and notice the love that Christ had for us. Let's remember what He said in verse 35, saying, By this, all men will know that you are My disciples if you have love for one another. Well, that implies that they have to see that love that we have for one another. John chapter 17, verse 21. Again, goes on to say that, and they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that also, and that they, they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Again, our unity can be a light for God. But again, it has to be a light that other people can see. You know, when they used to build cities, up on top of a hill. They didn't build them there so that they would, they would be hidden. Jerusalem, Samaria, these were cities built on a hill. And, and when you were walking by, you, you, would, you would not be able to miss these great cities set up on the hill. They did this to protect them from, from attacks, obviously. But also, so you knew, you knew where home was. You'd get far enough away, you could turn around. And if it's down in a valley, it's hard to see. But up on top of a hill, I can see where I need to go. I can see where I need to get back to. We need to be seen by the world. 
Paul emphasized this when he was speaking to the Corinthians. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 10. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9 through 10 says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Paul was telling us even, even to people, <coughs> even to people that you might not especially like, both the good and the bad alike, they need to be able to see you and your life. But not just seen, they need to be able to feel you as well. That gives our, our second thing that we need to remember, that we must radiate God's light, give off light or give off His warmth. Our lives with those around us should be in such a way that they can see and feel God's love for them through us. I want you to notice again who Jesus is, is referring to here. He's referring to citizens of His kingdoms. That means he's talking about what would eventually be known as Christians. It is a command given for Christians to the world. Oftentimes we excel at this when it comes to other Christians. And rightfully so. We are told to, to love one another and to comfort one another and to be, be patient with one another. But we need to remember that this message was given to teach us how to function in the world. Jesus would again say a short time later, if you, if you love just uh, those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not the tax collectors do the same? And so a principle is being conveyed then by the idea of a city and the idea of a lamp. You know, when you think of a lamp, it's designed to shine on the lampstand. We know we sing that song with the kids, this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. We get to the part, are we going to put it under a basket? No! No, we're not going to put it under a basket. Because one, that's, that's a very, I've always thought that's a very dangerous thing to do. Take one of mom's wicker baskets and put it over top of a candle. You're going to have a, a fire in a minute and you're going to get a spanking. The same reason why we don't put a candle down on the floor. It's the same reason we don't put it over a basket. Because it doesn't give off any light on the floor. It doesn't give off any light. In fact, the, the word that was used here was, was really shouldn't be candle. It should be lamp. Because even with a lamp, you can feel the heat radiating off of it. You would put those things up high so that they would give light to the whole room. So they could be seen and they could be felt by the room. If we only shine God's light to the members of His kingdom, we are effectively putting a basket over our light. This is the principle that is explicitly stated in verse 16. Let your light shine before men. And the purpose of such a visible radiation is followed up by that so that they may glorify the Father in heaven. 1 Peter 2. We read 1 Peter 2 verse 9 which told us that we were to proclaim His excellencies. But if we continue on in 1 Peter 2 starting in verse 11 it says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the things which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Even for those that don't know enough about you to know who you truly are and who are going to say terrible things about you, you need to be a light to them. You need to be someone that they can look at and they can examine. You know, in this day when, when Peter wrote these things, there were some terrible things 
that were levied out against Christians because people didn't know. They didn't know who Christians were, what they were, what they stood for. But they could see by their conduct that they weren't the demons that people were making them out to be. They weren't the kind of people that were trying to overthrow the government as they were being made out to be. You think back to, uh, to the time uh, when, when, when the walls were being rebuilt around Jerusalem. The city was being rebuilt. And then the things that they came back and told the kings, that they said, look, they're going to overthrow you. They didn't want to overthrow them. We need to be those kind of lights. When people see our conduct, they know that, well, you know what? We're not the kind of people that just, just hate orphans because we won't support an orphanage. We need to be the kind of people that shine a light that says, you know what? We're not the kind of people that just hate anything recreational because we don't think the church should support gyms or, or support music. We need to be the kind of people that shine a light that says, just because so many in the world think the Church of Christ is a cult, we're not a cult. We are people who simply want to follow our God, the one true God, and we want to live with Him as an authority in our lives, the authority in our lives. What that means is we're going to have to live honorable lives. We're going to have to live lives in such a way when people of this world even have ill things to say about us, they will see our conduct and they will say, you know what, something's different about that. I want to know more about it. I'm going to examine this conduct. What that means is we need to be a study manual. When we sing that song, we are the world's Bible, we need to understand this is what it's talking about. The salt and the light sort of living that we are called to be. We need to show other people what kingdom living looks like. And it's a living in such a way that shows that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Maybe we need one more point to show us why we must be concerned with this sort of living. And it is because of the one who is described as your Father who is in heaven. This title tells us that one, God is tender. And we ever really stop and think about that? Oftentimes we really like to harp on and really point out God's wrath. The world looks at it as a negative. We look at it as a, as a controlling issue. That's not really where we need to start off with, I don't believe. We need to realize that God is a Father. One of the first things, even in a, in a messed up world as this, one of the first things we should stop to realize is Father equates to tenderness. He loves us. And He desires to nurture and to protect us. And yes, He desires to raise us up, which includes discipline and allowing us to be disciplined, to be more like Him. And yes, there is wrath involved with that. But first and foremost, a father loves his child. And secondly, we see that He is from heaven. Let's say He is divine. He is far greater than any other. And such a loving and divine being is certainly worthy of being pleasing, uh, of us being pleasing to Him, and of us praising Him. So we who claim to be children of God, we who claim to be citizens of the kingdom, ask ourselves this question, should ask ourselves this question, are we pleasing to our Father by being the salt of the earth? 
Are we praising our Heavenly Father by being the light of the world and proclaiming His excellencies to it? If not, then we should make the prayer of David over in Psalm 51. We should make that prayer become our own. Verses 10 through 15, David said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit that I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness, O Lord. Open my lips that my mouth may declare your praises. This morning I ask you, what does your life look like? If it does not match up to what Christ expects of those in his kingdom, then you have a need to change that. <coughs> Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. This will be the last, last passage that we look at this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 12 through 13. What we read here is for the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. Paul here is talking to the Corinthians about shining their lights by giving. By giving to others. That's the immediate context. But I want us to notice what he said there in verse 13. The first thing we have to do to start living kingdom lives, the first thing that we have to do to start being the salt of the earth, to start being the light of the world, is to be obedient to the gospel of its king, Jesus Christ. We do that by submitting ourselves to him as our Lord. And that does not mean that we become drones of the state. You know, a lot of times we, we kind of, we, we don't mean to, but we teach people that, if you want to be a Christian, you've got to be just like me. You've got to be exactly like me to be a Christian. You've got to walk like me and talk like me and think just like me. If God wanted everybody to be the same, He would have created each and every one of us exactly the same. But that is not what He did. Because in God's kingdom, God wants a Jim and a Joe. And He wants... A, a, a Paula and a Ruby. He wants individuals in his kingdom. Individuals that will say, no matter what, you have authority over my life. And, then, and when there are times, and there will be times that our desires contrast one another, I will humbly sacrifice my desires to you just as you sacrificed your life on the cross for me. It was by His blood that all sins could be washed away and cleansed. This morning, if it be your desire to come to Christ in obedience to receive forgiveness from your sins, I want you to know we desire nothing more than to assist you in that. But if you have already come to Christ, you have allowed sin to come back between you and your Father, won't, won't you repent of that now? Won't you pray for His forgiveness? and commit yourself to serving Him fully. If there's anything we can do to help you in this manner, won't you please come forward right now as we stand and as we sing.